Hi, Dave Remmer here. This is For the Record Program number 1212. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 19. This is being recorded on November 3rd of the year 2021. Before getting into the program, and we are now heading down the home stretch to the conclusion of this series, uh, three links at the top of each written program description for For the Record and at the top of each Food for Thought post. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments made by mostly our brilliant contributing editor, Tara Fractal, and also sometimes by other intelligent listeners. The second link will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it, plus an old, uh, a library of old anti-fascist books that are available for easy-to-load, on easy-to-load download files, PDF files, for your uh, perusal. And uh, I'm now in my 43rd year on the air. When I conclude this series and one more show, in the Oswald Institute of Virology series, this will be in about a week or so, uh, the flash drive will be updated to include all of that. I am in my 43rd year uh, on the air, and people can uh, obtain that flash drive. The other link will enable you to uh, subscribe to the podcasts of For the Record that are being offered by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way... For you to consume the program, that is the best way, then that is the way to do that. Again, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting the program, and you can uh, obtain uh, that podcast by clicking on that link. Now, we are looking at, in the concluding episodes of this series, how not only Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist regime in China and uh, the closely allied Sung family and the China lobby that uh, was a function largely of the Sung family and their connections, not only how they influenced U.S. policy prior to World War II, during World War II, and uh, during the onset of the Cold War, but we are taking a look at how the world, uh, at least how America and its policies toward, in many ways, our own people and the world, grew out of that relationship. Because, indeed, one cannot understand the realities overtaking uh, the human race and uh, the American people in particular without understanding that relationship, including, by the way, COVID-19. And we'll be uh, revisiting the uh, SARS-CoV-2 op, uh, so to speak, in just another week or so. Uh, the metaphor that I have been using in the last several programs, and I believe it is absolutely apropos, uh, somewhat ironically so, in light of uh, what its uh, its creator intended. And it is uh, a 
metaphor of U.S. Far Eastern or Asian policy as a straight railway line that had been laid out and that anyone could see. Uh, the creator of that metaphor was a very influential State Department flack named Stanley, S-T-A-N-L-E-Y Hornbeck, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K, and his dubious career and that metaphor were laid out in a constantly important book that I have been using uh, for much of this series. It is called The Sung Dynasty, S-O-O-N-G Dynasty, by Sterling Seagrave with uh, liberal assistance from his wife, Peggy. And it is published in hardcover by Harper and Moe. There is also a softcover edition and an Amazon Kindle edition as well. Uh, I think the book is out of print. Other people have said they have been able to obtain it with no problem. So perhaps, mercifully, thankfully, it is still in print. In any event, it is a consummately important book, and I encourage people to Payment, read it. Now, um, the uh, aforementioned Sung Dynasty uh, describes Stanley Hornbeck as follows. The man officially responsible for making U.S.-China policy, Stanley Hornbeck, the doyen of state's Far Eastern Division, had only the most abbreviated and stilted knowledge of China, and had been out of touch personally for many years. And skipping down. Hornbeck got a job as a lecturer on Asia at Harvard in the 20s, published another book that did not stand up to serious scrutiny, and parlayed the book and his Harvard position into an appointment in 1928 as Chief of Far Eastern Affairs at the Department of State. This incredible stroke of misfortune for the nation gave Hornbeck control of the flow of information from Foreign Service officers to policy planners at state. One more time. This incredible stroke of misfortune for the nation gave Hornbeck control of the flow of information from Foreign Service officers to policy planners at state and to the presidential cabinet. He withheld cables from the Secretary of State that were critical of Chang and once stated that, quote, the United States Far Eastern policy is like a train running on a railroad track. It has been clearly laid out and where it is going is plain to all, unquote. It was, in fact, bound for Saigon in 1975 with whistle stops along the way at Peking, Kwamoy, Matsu, and the yellow, the yellow river. Excuse me. So the yellow river is in China. The yellow river is the border basically between China and North Korea. And, uh, the reference there is to the, uh, Korean War when Douglas MacArthur was warned by military intelligence officers not to approach the yellow river. If he did, the Chinese would enter the war. He disregarded their advice, did what they told him not to do with the results that they had predicted. And the result was a disastrous defeat in northern Korea and a stalemate uh, throughout the rest of the bloody Korean War. There is another... A very important whistle stop on the uh, train running on the railroad track. Again, the metaphor here uh, from Stanley Hornbeck. The United, the United States Far Eastern policy is like a train running on the railroad track. 
It has been clearly laid out, and where it is going is plain to all, unquote. Uh, that, sadly, is true, and we are going to be taking a look at another very important stop on that railway line, and this, too, uh, was the straightness, so to speak, of U.S.-Asian policy was, like the Vietnam War, uh, kept on track and on schedule, so to speak, by the assassination of President Kennedy. One of the great tragedies of our time is the fact that despite initial promises to do so, the U.S. and the Western allies in World War II did not grant independence from the former colonial territories that had been conquered by the Axis nations in World War II. When that promise was reneged, it basically left those former colonial territories to uh, ostensibly choose between either the Soviet bloc or the Western bloc. Many of them did not want to do either. And in 1955, there was a conference in Bandung, Indonesia, at which uh, the various uh, non-aligned nations participated, and it created a movement of non-aligned nations, the largest of which was Indonesia under President Sukarno. Indonesia had been a Dutch colony. It was conquered by the Japanese in World War II. Then when the Dutch attempted to regain control of Indonesia, there was a bloody revolutionary war. Eventually the Dutch were defeated. When President Sukarno came to power, uh, he pointedly sought to avoid affiliation either with the Western Bloc or with the Eastern Bloc, there was a very large communist party in Indonesia. It was a far cry from, from, for example, uh, the Bolsheviks under Lenin or uh, the uh, more heinous phases of the Chinese Communist Party under Mao. Uh, It was a very large Communist Party, the largest outside of the Soviet Union or uh, Communist China. It, however, was uh, inclusive. It was democratically oriented with a small d. They they believed in and practiced uh, democratic electoral politics. They were very popular for that reason and also because they were very inclusive from a religious standpoint, far from being atheist as many Marxist parties were, uh, they were very hospitable to not only the sizable Hindu and Buddhist minorities in Indonesia, but also quite a few Muslims as well. Indonesia is a majority Muslim country. Some of the more militant slash jihadist elements of uh, the uh, Muslim population of Indonesia eventually sided with the Kusters uh, and the bloody uh, regime that uh, precipitated the slaughter that we would be talking about in this program. However, President Sukarno of Indonesia was the target of an attempted coup in 1958 when uh, the U.S. and the CIA sought to break up Indonesia. Uh, President Kennedy, as we looked at in, among other programs, uh, our last uh, three 
interviews with Jindy Eugenia. We did a 25-program series, 25 one-hour interviews with Jindy Eugenia about his landmark text, Destiny Betrayed, about the JFK assassination and the garrison investigation of Sane. And uh, JFK had pointedly sought to avoid, to distance himself from attempts to destabilize and remove Sukarno. However, as we have noted in our last couple of programs, it was the assassination of JFK that kept American-Asian policy moving along that straight railway track that was described by Stanley Hornbeck. Uh, the Vietnam War was seen in many ways as an extension of uh, the struggle against uh, the Chinese Communists, first uh, by Chiang Kai-shek and collaborating with the Japanese, then in the Korean War, in which there was also substantial Japanese participation. There were thousands of Japanese and Yakuza uh, troops fighting on the uh, South Korean side. Uh, as we looked at uh, last week, as we reviewed, uh, Unit 731 veterans and methodology were clandestinely used by the U.S. in the Vietnam War after the aforementioned Chinese intervention near the Yalu River. That, in turn, uh, led to the mind control programs that we spoke about uh, in our last program. Louis Jolyon West was one of the CIA and military's top mind control experts. He had a pioneer mind control job done on Airman Jimmy Shaver at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. He then eventually went on to become Jack Ruby's psychiatrist. Jack Ruby, in his interview with the Warren Commission, uh, said, among other things, this to Warren Commission member uh, Representative Gerald Ford, who later went on to become vice president of the U.S. under Nixon, then president when Nixon was removed uh, as a result of the Watergate scandal, and then pardoned Richard Nixon of any crime he had committed. At one point, Gerald Ford asked Jack Ruby, by that do you mean a party to the plot of Oswald, meaning that Oswald was some sort of, was involved with some sort of conspiracy, uh, generally either uh, Soviet or, uh, uh, and or uh, Castro-Cuban. And, uh, and, and Jack Ruby replied to Gerald Ford, quote, this is verbatim, I'm trying to tell you that I'm part of a plot to silence Oswald, unquote. People say, well, I don't think there could have been a conspiracy behind Kennedy's assassination. Just what the hell do you think Jack Ruby was saying? I'm trying to tell you that I'm part of a plot to silence Oswald. My interpretation of that is that he's trying to tell Ford and the rest of the Warren Commission members that he's part of a plot to silence Oswald. But then maybe that's just me, and I'm just a conspiracy theorist from California, and you know how they are, right? Anyway, once Louis Jolyon West paid Jack Ruby a visit, he didn't make any more statements like that. Eventually, as uh, we have looked at in our uh, treatment of the remarkable, consummately important book, Chaos, uh, by Tom O'Neill, the Manson family deprivations appear to have been not only a domestic U.S. intelligence operation, 
operation, but very possibly part of a domestic Phoenix program meant to uh, win over hearts and minds in the U.S. Uh, on uh, behalf of the Vietnam War, uh, much as the Vietnam War was said to be um, a struggle to win over the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese. It appears that the Manson family was put together in Northern California at the Haight, in, in considerable measure at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which appears to have served as an intelligence front, at least to a certain extent. In any event, that is discussed in the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill. And, uh, it was JFK's assassination. And as we've looked at, uh, in our last couple of shows, it was Time Incorporated and Time Life magazine that have served as the, as America's eyes and ears on, uh, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek and his wife, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Mei Mei-Ling Sung, whom, uh, Henry Luce nicknamed the Gisimo and the Misimo. Just as Henry Luce's uh, time incorporated, it was in many ways America's eyes and ears on the Chang regime, so too by virtue of its manipulation of the Zapruder film and also of the <laughs> remarkable, uh, darkly humorous uh, photo of Lee Harvey Oswald on the cover of Life magazine, which his body is tilted on a ridiculous angle, and the directions of the shadows under his chin and elsewhere in the photograph go in different directions, which is impossible. And as we are going to see, once again, time life uh, figured in the misrepresentation of what was going on in Indonesia following the coup. It was that coup that was the uh, nesting place to an extent of President Barack Obama. We'll talk about him either late in this show or in our earlier on our next program. Uh, there is evidence that Obama not only is connected to the CIA, I think personally he's second generation CIA, maybe even third, that's a reach, we'll talk about that, uh, either late in this show or probably in our next program. I don't think we're going to have time in this one. But it was Barack Obama who uh, launched the, quote, pivot, unquote, to Asia. And uh, it was, of course, Joe Biden who was uh, Barack Obama's vice president. President. The U.S. is basically run by uh, a deep state, and uh, those supporters of Donald Trump who haven't figured out that uh, Donald Trump is beholden under the same deep state are, well, they are deluded. What we are going to look at in this program is how the policy that the U.S. pursued in Indonesia uh, kept the U.S policy in Asia running along that straight railway line. And again, Kennedy had uh, advocated uh, constructive relations with President Sukarno. He had resisted attempts at overthrowing Sukarno, and it was his assassination that then cleared the way for the destabilization of the Sukarno regime and the slaughter of a million, I've seen as high as three million uh, Indonesians uh, in the resulting bloodbath. Another excellent, excellent book that, that I would recommend to the listeners. Uh, it is called The Jakarta Method, subtitled Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, 
and the mass murder program that shaped our world. It is offered by Vincent Bevins, B-E-V-I-N-S. We use this in the For the Record program uh, 1177, and it was published in hardcover by Public Affairs Books. And again, this is an excellent book. I recommend it heartily, and as is the case with you know, Chaos by Tom O'Neill, The Sung Dynasty, Gold Warriors by the Seagraves, uh, I get no money whatsoever from this, uh, from uh, talking about the book. Ideally, uh, this will get people to read the book, tell others about it. It is very, very important. Now, in the Jakarta Method, there is discussion of the importance of Indonesia to uh, the Johnson administration and uh, how important uh, getting rid of uh, Sukarno's regime and the large uh, democratic communist party in Indonesia was. Again, this was not some totalitarian regime. It was not atheist. It was actually among the reasons for its popularity. It was not only uh, democratically oriented. It was not atheist, and uh, it welcomed uh, the various religions that were prevalent in the predominantly Muslim uh, Indonesia. Uh, Hindu, there were large Hindu and Buddhist minorities, as I have said, they were welcome in this party, as were uh, practicing Muslims, the more reactionary Muslim organizations, the more jihadist-oriented uh, elements of the Indonesian Muslim population, sided with the Kustras, but the Indonesian Communist Party was very, very democratic, very popular, very inclusive. It rejected atheism. It rejected totalitarianism. And it also, in many ways, incorporated the very large uh, Chinese ethnic minority in Indonesia, which was very large. In the Jakarta Method, Vincent Bevins writes as follows, quote, President Johnson has come increasingly to the conclusion that, at the end of the day, he would be ready for major war against Indonesia, unquote, said Secretary of State Dean Rusk to a British official. A meeting of the National Security Council's Secret 303 Committee concluded that, quote, the loss of a nation of 105 million to the, quote, communist camp, unquote, would make a victory in Vietnam of little meaning, unquote. Under Secretary of State George Ball and National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy agreed that the loss of Indonesia would be, quote, the biggest thing since the fall of China, unquote. As we've seen in the past, it was Chiang Kai-shek, his refusal to uh, use his military forces to combat the Japanese, uh, something was forecast by even T.B. Sung himself as early as 1932, to uh, ultimately, if it was not changed, that policy would drive the Chinese people into the arms of Mao Zedong and the communists. Then when... Uh, there was continued collaboration between Chiang Kai-shek and the invading Japanese, and when thousands of Japanese were used in the Chinese civil war against the communist Chinese, that basically sealed the deal. The people who, quote, lost China, unquote, assuming that China was, quote, ours, unquote, to lose, well, it was the very people that uh, used that 
as a battle cry during the McCarthy period. It was Chang, it was the China lobby, it was the Sung family and the Japanese and the State Department officials like Stanley Hornbeck who were aligned with them, not to mention uh, journalistic interests like Time Life Incorporated. More from the Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. By the way, the pattern, the, the title of the Jakarta Method uh, alludes to a methodological operational paradigm that became a major feature of U.S. Cold War policy in which the slaughter in Indonesia became the template for uh, similar programs elsewhere in the developing world. Again, uh, the subtitle of the book, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. Uh, Continuing with the passage that we looked at, in December of 1964, Pakistan's ambassador to Paris, J. A. Rahim, R-A-H-I-M, sent a letter to his foreign minister, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, reporting on a conversation he had with a Dutch intelligence officer working for NATO. He wrote that Western intelligence agencies were organizing, quote, a premature communist coup, unquote. Indonesia, the NATO officer told him, was ready to fall into the Western lap like a rotten apple. And the available evidence suggests very strongly that what was known as the September 30th movement, featuring, among others, General Suharto, who became the military dictator of Indonesia and presided over the mass murder program. He was part of it. It appears to have been uh, basically a uh, provocation operation. At some point, perhaps, we'll talk about some of the propaganda uh, surrounding what happened in that coup, about how uh, the Gerwami, I may be mispronouncing that, but it's spelled G-E-R-W-A-M-I, uh, female Indonesian Communist Party uh, members were sexually taunting and torturing and uh, castrating uh, Indonesian officers and so forth. And again, it, uh, this appears to have been part of what is known as a black propaganda campaign developed with considerable assistance from CIA and the West. And uh, a an indication of how things were seen in uh, the... Uh, coup itself, and we'll talk about what exactly happened. Most of the Western press reported the narrative being peddled by the new Indonesian government, which Washington was enthusiastically welcoming on the world stage. The story went more or less that some spontaneous violence erupted when regular people found out about what the communists had done or been planning. These articles said that the natives had, quote, run amok, unquote, and engaged in bloodshed. Because the word amok, unquote, originated in Malay, the language that formed the basis for both Indonesian and Malaysian, this made it easier for Western journalists to employ Orientalist stereotypes about Asians as primitive, backward, and violent people, and blame the violence on a putative, sudden irrational outburst. On April 13th, 1966, C. L. Salzberger penned a piece, one of many in this genre, with the headline, quote, When a Nation Runs Amok, unquote, for the New York Times. As Salzberger described it, the killings occurred in, quote, 
violent Asia, where life is cheap, unquote. He reproduced the lie that Communist Party members had killed the generals on October 1st and that Gerwami women slashed and tortured them. He went on to affirm that, quote, Indonesians are gentle, but hidden behind their smiles is that strange melee streak, that inner frenzied bloodlust which has given to other languages one of their few melee words, amok, unquote. The melee and now Indonesian concept of amok actually referred to a traditional form of ritual suicide, even if the anglicization now refers to wild violence more generally. But there's no reason to believe that the mass violence of 1965-66 has its roots in native culture. No one has any evidence of mass murder of this kind happening in Indonesian history, except for when foreigners were involved. This story of inexplicable, vaguely tribal violence, so easy for American readers to digest, was entirely false. This was organized state violence with a clear purpose. The main obstacles to a complete military takeover were eliminated by a coordinated program of extermination, the intentional mass murder of innocent civilians. The generals were able to take power after state terror sufficiently weakened their political opponents, who had no weapons, only public sympathy. They didn't resist their own annihilation because they had no idea what was coming. And still later, it wasn't only U.S. government officials who handed over kill lists to the Army. Managers of U.S.-owned plantations furnished them with the names of, quote, troublesome communists and union organizers who were then murdered. The prime responsibility for the massacres and concentration camps lies with the Indonesian military, by the way, for whom Barack Obama's stepfather, Lolo, worked more about that either later in this or early in our next program. We still do not know if the method employed, disappearance and mass extermination, was planned well before October of 1965, perhaps inspired by other cases around the world, or planned under foreign direction, or if it emerged as a solution as events unfolded. But Washington shares guilt for every death. The United States was part and parcel of the operation at every stage, starting well before the killing started until the last Bobby dropped and the last political prisoner emerged from jail, decades later tortured, scarred, and bewildered. At several points that we know of, and perhaps some we don't, Washington was the prime mover and provided crucial pressure for the operation to move forward or expand. U.S. strategy since the 1950s had been to try to find a way to destroy the Indonesian Communist Party, not because it was seizing power undemocratically, but because it was Popular. By the way, a lot of the people killed don't appear to have been uh, even members of the uh, PKI, the uh, Indonesian Communist Party, but union organizers or people who were, uh, uh, had a grudge held against them by some of the either coup plotters or just some of the assistants in the mass murder. Uh, more about that perhaps later. Skipping down. 
When the conflict came, and when the opportunity arose, the U.S. government helped spread the propaganda that made the killing possible and engaged in constant conversations with the Army to make sure that military officers had everything they needed from weapons to kill lists. The U.S. Embassy constantly provided, uh, one more time, the U.S. Embassy constantly prodded the military to adopt a stronger position and take over the government, knowing full well that the method being employed to make this possible was to round up hundreds of thousands of people around the country, stab or strangle them, and throw their corpses in the rivers. The Indonesian military officers understood very well that the more people they killed, the weaker the left would be, and the happier Washington would be. Up to a million Indonesians, maybe more, were killed as part of Washington's global anti-communist crusade. The U.S. government expanded significant resources, one more time, the U.S. government expended significant resources over years, engineering the conditions for a violent clash, and then when the violence broke out, assisted and guided its long-time partners to carry out the mass murder of civilians as a means of achieving U.S. geopolitical goals. And in the end, U.S. officials got what they wanted. It was a huge victory. As historian John Rusa puts it, R-O-O-S-A, quote, almost overnight, the Indonesian government went from being a fierce voice for Cold War neutrality and anti-imperialism to a quiet, compliant partner of the U.S. world order. This was something... This was something for almost everyone in the U.S. government and elite media circles to celebrate, given the thinking that was dominant at the time. James Reston, a liberal columnist for the New York Times, published a piece under the headline, A Gleam of Life in Asia, unquote. He noted correctly that, quote, there was a great deal more contact between the anti-communist forces in that country and at least one very high official in Washington before and during the Indonesian massacre than is generally realized. It is doubtful if the coup would ever have been attempted without the American show of strength in Vietnam or been sustained without the clandestine aid that has received indirectly from here, unquote. Leston said that the, quote, savage transformation of Indonesia from a pro-Chinese policy under Sukarno to a defiantly anti-communist policy under General Suharto is, of course, the most important, unquote, of a number of hopeful political developments in Asia, unquote, that he saw as outweighing Washington's more widely publicized setbacks in Vietnam. And again, uh, Indonesia was seen as perhaps even more important than Vietnam at this point in time, and it was Kennedy's assassination that kept U.S. policy running on that straight railway track described by Stanley Hornbeck, both with regard to Vietnam and with regard to Indonesia. And again, um, for the record purpose, 154, 155, and 156 uh, interviews with Jim Eugenio talk about that. And we'll uh, talk perhaps uh, some more about, uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly be talking uh, more about the uh, uh, 
coup in Indonesia in, in our next program. We're just not going to have time to talk about all of it here. Uh, it should be noted, though, that, uh, again, this, this was a template for not only other mass murder programs in the third world, but uh, it was the Indonesian coup and its aftermath that was part of the political forces and historical forces that shaped Barack Obama. More about that probably next week. Uh, note the role here of the New York Times in basically uh, putting a happy face on this bloody event. Uh, the New York Times, of course, not only is regarded as the CIA's number one propaganda asset, but it was the publisher of the Warren Report and continues to defend that uh, document of fiction to this day. One of the many things that happened was the deliberate economic destabilization of Indonesia as the coup was taking place, this in order to uh, see to it that General that, uh, President Sukarno was cast out of office and the U.S. government, again, was heavily involved with this. This is recognizable to uh, savvy listeners as making the economy scream, unquote. A tactic that has been used uh, in many ways in many countries. It was one of the ways that uh, set the stage for the overthrow of uh, Salvador Allende in Chile. And prior to the uh, removal of Allende, there were posters being uh, put up all around Chile, particularly in Santiago, uh, saying that, quote, Jakarta is coming in Spanish, meaning that what happened in Indonesia was going to happen in Chile, and it did. Returning to the Jakarta method by Vincent Bevins. Over the period of the killings, the economic situation deteriorated, reducing further what remained of Sukarno's power. According to Subandrio, his foreign minister, Suharto, intentionally engineered hyperinflation by working with businessmen to restrict the supply of basic goods like rice, sugar, and cooking oil. Suharto encouraged anti-communist student groups often drawn from the same schools Benny had attended just years earlier to protest those high prices. Benny, one of the many uh, people uh, discussed by Vincent Bevins and interviewed uh, with regard to the coup, the, the various coups not only in Indonesia but elsewhere in the developing world. Continuing, the U.S. government was intentionally destabilizing the economy. And uh, in addition to uh, what took place there, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, what took place in uh, – well, before we get, to, we get to what took place in Bali. Bali is something of a uh, – the, the island of Bali, it was uh, – uh, it was elevated, it was uh, – uh, it was a major feature in the musical South Pacific, where they talk about uh, Bali High. It was, uh, in many ways, an iconic uh, tropical paradise, at least in the eyes of uh, many people in the West. We're going to talk about what happened in Bali, but uh, once again, in terms of understanding the significance, not only of what happened in China under Chiang Kai-shek, but in the way in which the world that we live in today has grown out of that. Where a few weeks ago, we looked at how uh, it was Chiang Kai-shek's narco-fascist government that uh, helped set the template for U.S. government drug trafficking, which they do. 
the another factor that should be understood is how distorted our media, our, uh, our, how the how distorted the picture we're getting from our media is. We took a look at how the New York Times uh, distorted what took place in Indonesia and what James Weston talked about as a, a gleam of light in Asia. Uh, we're going to talk about Time Life. Once again, it was Henry Luz and Time Incorporated that were America's eyes and ears on Chiang Kai-shek. They were deeply involved with uh, the lionization of that regime as part of the China lobby propaganda campaign during the Cold War. And they were America's eyes and ears in many ways on Bailey Plaza and the assassination of JFK through the manipulation of the Zapruder film. Once again, time life figures prominently in the portrayal of the Indonesian coup as well. Once again, returning to the Jakarta method by Vincent Bevins. In January of 1966, Senator Bobby Kennedy said, quote, We have spoken out against the inhuman slaughters perpetrated by the Nazis and the communists. But will we speak out also against the inhuman slaughter in Indonesia, where over 100,000 alleged communists have, been not, have not been perpetrators but victims, unquote, one more time. In January of 1966, Senator Bobby Kennedy said, quote, We have spoken out against the inhuman slaughters perpetrated by the Nazis and the communists, but will we speak out also against the inhuman slaughter in Indonesia, where over a 100,000 alleged communists have not been perpetrators, but victims, unquote. No other prominent U.S. politician condemned the massacre. By this time, RFK was in the habit of speaking out forcefully in ways that others wouldn't. It's unclear whether he knew that the, Indone- that the Johnson administration was actively assisting with the massacre at that point. One more time. It's unclear whether he knew that the Johnson administration was actively assisting with the massacre at that point. Maybe RFK had a kind of conversion about the nature of black ops after his brother's death. Maybe it was politics. But we do know that whatever it was, Washington did not spell, did not, one more time, but we know that whatever it was, Washington did not stop helping to carry out Operation Annihilation. The U.S. economic elite heard a very different message. Indonesia was open for business. In 1967, the first year of Suharto's fully consolidated rule, General Electric, American Express, Caterpillar, and Goodyear Tire all came to explore the new opportunities available to them in Indonesia. Starkist Foods arrived to see about fishing in Indonesian waters, and of course, defense contractors Raytheon and Lockheed popped over too. James Lennon, L-I-M-E-N, president of Time Life, went a step further. He contacted both the embassy and President Suharto himself, uh, General Suharto himself, expressing interest in putting out a, one more time, he contacted both the embassy and Suharto himself, expressing interest in putting on a major business conference focusing on Indonesian opportunities. Ambassador Green said, quote, this seemed to him an excellent idea, unquote, because again, quoting, a number of American companies, particularly in the extractive industries, 
were already in Jakarta. Uh, by the way, one of the many reasons that the U.S. was opposed to Sukarno, he was moving to nationalize uh, the uh, very considerable uh, petroleum, or the, the, the petroleum companies, American petroleum companies in, the, in, in Indonesia. Indonesia is a major petroleum uh, producing country. And also, as we looked at in our discussions with Jim Diagemio, uh the Freeport Corporation, Freeport Sulfur was one of the companies that employed not only uh, Clay Shaw, but also David Ferry in the JFK assassination. And Freeport Mining had huge gold and other mining resources in Indonesia. They were among the extractive industries that were very uh, much involved with Indonesia. Continuing about uh, what uh, Time Life President James Lennon said, Lennon wrote to Suharto, quote, I had the privilege of visiting your country last fall and was most favorably impressed with the progressive developments that have been taking place. It occurred to me that an international investment conference could be a most productive undertaking. Suharto agreed. They began preparations for a swanky get-together in Geneva in the fall. And as something of a perspective on... uh, the uh, before and after, and in a sense, what took place in uh, in in Indonesia. We're going to take a look at what took place on the island of Bali. Again, something of an iconic tropical paradise. It was uh, sort of uh, I don't know what the word would be. It, it was uh, almost beatified, if one could speak about that, for a region in the musical South Pacific. Uh, an iconic tropical paradise, a very beautiful place, and one of the areas in which uh, the slaughter was most egregious. Uh, we're going to talk now about what took place in Bali during the coup. Bali, and by the way, throughout the book, uh, Vincent Bevins uh, talks about various parts of Indonesia and uh, how the slaughter took place in those areas. Bali, January 1st, 1966. The violence arrived on the island of Bali in December. It's almost like it started at Indonesia's westernmost tip and moved east across the main population centers through central Java to east Java and then to Bali, like the movement of the sun, only precisely in reverse. The slaughter in Bali was probably the worst in all of Indonesia. As the new year began, the island convulsed with violence. Agung Ali, that's A-V-U-N-G, last name capital A-L-I-P, was just a little boy, but he knew they were looking for his father. His father, Raka, R-A-K-A, knew it too. So instead of sleeping at home, he went to sleep in the nearby Hindu temple. Agung stayed at home. As he slept, men came to their home night after night, rummaging around, demanding to know where Raka was. Finally, they got him. Agung was awoken, and his family told him his father was gone. They weren't sure when he would be back. The people of Bali knew something was very suspicious about the outbreak of violence. People were being killed with big machetes. Machetes are not native to the island. Balinese people used the klewang, K-L-E-W-A-N-G, a thinner, local blade. Someone must have brought the heavy weapons in from another island. And, as elsewhere, 
locals were participating in the killing. Agung heard that it was actually a neighbor, a man known by the family who took away his father. The Makebis arrived around the same time that military anti-communist propaganda campaigns nationally coordinated also arrived in Bali. One rumor declared that Girwani women had plans to sell their bodies in order to buy weapons for a communist revolt and to castrate the soldiers they seduced. Propaganda teams toured rural areas spreading stories like this, driving home the message that the people must, quote, be on the side of the G30s, meaning the September 30th movement, or stand behind the government in crushing the G30s. There is no such thing as a neutral position, unquote. Some killings were carried out by members of the PMI, the Nationalist Party Sukarno had founded long ago, as well as local paramilitary gangs that had already been opposing the government's national land reform program. Young Wayan Bhagra, W-A-Y-A-N, last name B-A-B-R-A, the 13-year-old son of the Hindu priest in the Seminyak neighborhood, that's capital S-E-M-I-N-Y-A-K. One more time. Young Wayan Bhagra, the 13-year-old son of the Hindu priest in the Seminyak neighborhood, noticed that the two nice communist teachers at his school went away and never came back. Then he heard what was happening on the beaches. They were bringing people from the city to the east to kill them on the sand. It was public property there and empty at night. The bodies were abandoned there. Some families came to recover them. Others were gathered by Bagra's village to be given anonymous funeral rites and cremated by his father. For Balinese Hindus, the loss of a family member's body is a deep, spiritual tragedy of infinite consequence. So a few years after the violence ended, Agon went with his family to find his father's body and give him an honorable funeral and cremation. They walked four kilometers to the site where someone told them they could find his remains. They found a field of bodies. They began looking through bones, picking up skulls. Someone shouted, This is Mr. Raka, unquote. But no, the skull didn't look right. Maybe the hair was wrong. Maybe that one. They kept sorting through decomposing bodies desperately for minutes before someone realized it was impossible, crazy. There were, quote, just too many skulls, too many skeletons, unquote. They walked back home for an hour, processing the knowledge that they would never lay him to rest and sickened by the vast sea of humanity they had just entered. In Poho, at least 5% of the population of Bali was killed, that is 80,000 people, probably the highest proportion in the country. The Balinese had been especially strong supporters of Sukarno's multi-faith political project because it gave Hindus more freedom in a Muslim-majority country. A severe economic crisis in the early 1960s made the communists' promises of redistribution more attractive to some and more threatening to others. The PMI killed Suteja, S-U-T-E-J-A, the governor and members of his family, and spread the myth that he actually chose to Nayupat, N-Y-U-P-A-T, or volunteered to be executed and be reincarnated as a better person. Some Balinese 
were indeed asked if they wanted to mupat or not. But those who said no were killed anyway, rendering the question meaningless. They were executed, murdered one by one over just a few months for affiliation with an unarmed political party that had been entirely legal and mainstream just weeks earlier. A little bit later, the first tourist hotel went up on the very beach, Seminyak, that had been used as a killing field. And uh, jumping through time, almost like Rob Serling in the old Twilight Zone, we're going to take a look at what took place in uh, Bali uh, years later. Wayne Bhadra, the Hindu priest, lives on the street where he grew up in Suminyak, southwest of Bali. But the neighborhood has changed drastically. That same beach that he used to walk on for 40 minutes every morning as he headed to school down in Kuta is certainly not empty. It's packed wall-to-wall with luxury resorts and beach clubs, unquote, a very common type of business on the island where foreigners can sip cocktails all day and take a dip in the pool right on the sand. It's the same sand, of course, where the military brought people from Khan a few miles east to kill them at night. Right on the beach, a few feet from Barbara's home, is one of the bigger, more upscale beach clubs in Bali. Seminyak has become one of the more expensive places to stay on the island, where the tourism usually revolves around wellness and spa treatment or mindfulness, unquote, and meditation and massages, or, of course, sun and surfing. If aliens from another world landed on Bali, they would immediately conclude that our planet has a racial hierarchy. The white people who come here for vacation are orders of magnitude wealthier than the locals who serve them. One more time. The white people who come here for vacation are orders of magnitude wealthier than the locals who serve them. It is just accepted as a natural part of life. Almost everywhere in Southeast Asia, white people have the disposable income to buy lavish hospitality or sex for the locals. They were born with this wealth. Compared to the rest of Indonesia, Bali has done okay for itself economically as a result of the tourism, and Balinese people often obediently reproduce the Bali smile, unquote, as they get Australian surfers their eggs or Russian Instagram models their coconuts. Almost none of the tourists who come, no matter how well-meaning and how well-educated, know what happened here, says Ingura Termama, the nephew of Agung Alip, the man who spent a darkly absurd afternoon sifting through skulls in search of his father's body. In contrast to Cambodia, where Western backpackers faithfully or morbidly visit the Killing Fields Museum outside Phnom Penh, few people who come to Bali are aware that a huge part of the local population was slaughtered right underneath their beach chairs. Quote, Even when we meet with NGO groups, the most internationally informed type of people, they know about Rwanda, they know about Pol Pot, everything, but no one had any idea of what happened here, unquote, says Nguru Termama, who is a founding member of Taman 65, or the 1965 Garden, a collective dedicated to promoting memory 
and reconciliation on the island. The group put out a book on the killings in Bali, as well as a CD of songs that prisoners sang in the concentration camps here. The members of Taman 65 know that there's a reason none of the tourists know about the violence that took the lives of so many of their relatives. The government has buried that history deep, even deeper than it has buried on the... Uh, one more time. The government has buried that history deep, even deeper than it was buried on the island of Java. The tourism boom, which started in the late 1960s, required that. Before Suharto, a huge amount of Bali's land was communal and often disputed. Quote, they needed to kill the communists so that foreign investors could bring their capital here, unquote, said Ngura Termama. Now, all visitors see here is our famous smile, he continued. They have no idea of the darkness and the fire that works underneath, unquote. The luxury beach club a few steps away from Lyon Barbara's home has a name that is almost comically on the nose. It is called Kube Palace, capital K-U, capital D-E, capital T-A, Bahasa, Indonesia for Kube Pa, unquote. I asked the staff if they knew wh- why they might be, begin again. I asked the staff there if they knew why that might be ironic. They did not. Over the years, Leon Barbara and his neighbors have found bones and skulls in the sand around coup d'etat. As the elder priest for this village, he takes it upon himself to give the bodies a proper Hindu funeral. Recently, one of the villagers made a mistake. He kept a skull for himself in his office and put it next to some flowers on the table. Playing around, he put a hat on the skull. Quote, Maybe the person who died didn't like being treated like this. The skull started to move on its own, Wayne Barbara said. The man got scared and quickly brought it to Wayne Barbara for a respectful, proper burial. That was Bali during the massacre and Bali today. And uh, it was exactly in this time that on the island of Taiwan, the regime of Chiang Kai-shek, which at this point had fled to Taiwan, uh, was instrumental in establishing what became the World Anti-Communist League. We probably won't have time to finish this in this uh, program, but I'm going to begin it as an element of continuity here. The Republic of China the state set up by Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists in Taiwan, still insisted on its claim to mainland China and had long been home to active anti-communist crusaders. The small dictatorship run from Taipei paid close attention to the massacre in Indonesia, sponsoring attacks on the Chinese embassy in Jakarta as a way to both weaken Sukarno and Mao's regime in Beijing. In 1966, Taiwan and South Korea, still run by Park Chung-hee, the big paper installed in South Korea with the help of Matt Marshall Green before Green took over for Howard Jones as U.S. ambassador in Indonesia, came together to found the World 
Anti-Communist League. And we'll talk, uh, we'll finish this, uh, and, and uh, talk some more about the Indonesian coup. Uh, again, an element, uh, of that straight railway line in Asia that was kept on track by JFK's assassination. However, this is all we have time for in this program. This concludes for the record program number 1212. The Marco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 19. This is being recorded on November 3rd, 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.